The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov, where you get a Christian Reconstructionist perspective on the pressing issues of today. Welcome to episode 38 of Acts to the Root Podcast, part of the War Room Productions. I'm Bo Marinoff, and for the next 20 minutes, we will be talking about a topic I shouldn't be talking about if I had an ounce of practical common sense, or what passes for common sense in modern-day America. I will be talking about white privilege. Yes, one of those buzzwords of the modern political and social debate, and the realities behind it. Because, as we will see, there is a certain reality behind it. I know, I know, from the perspective of either side of the debate, liberals or conservatives, I shouldn't be using that word, and I shouldn't be talking about white privilege to start with. For the liberals, I'm a Christian, and I'm right-wing, and I'm against socialism and government intervention. Therefore, I can't possibly be speaking of white privilege the way I should, in terms of their redefined notion of social justice, that is, government-mandated and enforced redistribution. Therefore, if I'm not advocating for more government action, I shouldn't be speaking on white privilege to start with. For the conservatives, white privilege is a no-no term. There isn't such a thing as white privilege. It's a made-up notion. The only good mention of the term is to deny its reality. You don't need a whole podcast on it. And if you're not simply denying that white privilege exists, then your true colors are showing. You're a liptard, and this is where you lost me. I can't listen to the end, etc., etc., etc. In other words, this episode can get me stoned, uh, not in the good sense of the word, by both sides. However, I don't have that much common sense in the modern American political meaning of the word to worry about these reactions from both sides. I'll be talking about white privilege and that from a covenantal, that is, ethical judicial perspective. Conservatives to the contrary, white privilege does exist in this country. It is real, and for us to deny it is immature and self-defeating. Liberals to the contrary, white privilege in itself is not a problem, and there is no guilt associated with it, and their so-called social justice concerns are not a problem. What is a problem is the perversion of real judicial justice, which is partly related to white privilege, but is an issue of its own. And to fight against a false problem while ignoring the real problem is immature and self-defeating. There's a biblical view of the relation between privilege and justice, and this is what I want to talk about in this episode. Now, any talk about this relation between privilege and justice must start with an understanding of the difference between the pagan view of justice and the biblical view of justice. It's not that pagan religions and philosophies have no view of justice. They do. After all, in a world thoroughly permitted with Christian ideas and worldview, no one can afford to not have a view of justice, or they wouldn't be able to compete on the market of ideas. Now, their view of justice, however, is perfectly described by the common depiction of the goddess of justice as a blindfolded lady with scales and a sword. We don't have much time to go deeper into the details of this symbolism, but the whole meaning of it, and especially of the blindfold, is that justice is supposed to be impersonal. That is, there should be no mindfulness of the social status or privileges of the parties in a trial. Lady Justice doesn't need to know the identity of the parties. She needs to know just fact from fiction and weigh the facts. That's what the scales are for. The pagan ideal is a goddess of justice, 
blindfolded to all other factors involved, declaring justice as an abstract, impersonal principle detached from the realities of life. In stark contrast to it is the justice of God described in the Bible. It is not a blind or impersonal justice. God doesn't put on a blindfold when watching the judgments of man. He is deeply involved not only in the abstract application of justice across the board. He has a very deep bias to a certain groups and classes of people. In the courtrooms of men, and not only in their courtrooms, but in their houses, offices, vehicles, in their marketplaces, board patrol points, he has his eyes wide open to see how judges, and every one of us in fact, treats his special people, those that he has as his favorites, specially protected classes. He specifically warns the earthly judges about these people and promises specific judgments if these people are denied justice. He is not a respecter of persons. He judges every wickedness and injustice, but injustice to some people he judges more severely and he warned us about it. In so many places in the Old Testament law, God warns against mistreating the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, that if I quote all of them in a row, this episode will get a bit too long. He warns against general mistreatment of them anywhere, Exodus 22:22. He also warns against injustice against them in the courtroom, Deuteronomy 27:19. He warns against mistreating them in regards to economic dealings and specifically debt transactions, Deuteronomy 24:17. They should have a priority in terms of charity, Deuteronomy 24:19 through 21 and 26:12 through 13, etc., etc., etc. But they they are not the only special categories. They are other special treats for some people. For example, a young girl raped in the field by a man was the only type of victim who could send a criminal to death without the word of a second witness. Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27. We already saw in the previous episode of Acts to the Root that a concubine who was not provided for could leave her husband without guilt and without restoring the bride price to him. A poor person in Israel had a special right to zero-interest loan, and the lender had to return him his cloak every single night, Exodus 22, 25-27. And God specifically warned that he would be getting involved in if this was violated. In addition, the lender was warned against entering the house of his poor debtor to take his pledge, Deuteronomy 24, 10-13. He had to wait outside until the man brought it out to him. The wages of a poor and needy hired laborer had to be paid every day, not wait until some later date, Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15. A man who was engaged or newly wed or built or bought a new house or planted a vineyard and hadn't tasted its fruit was free of the draft for one year, Deuteronomy 25 through 7, 24, 5. All these are valid in the new covenant as well, of course, and there are more special treatments. Older widows in the New Covenant were more protected than younger widows, 1 Timothy 5, 3-15. A wife and a husband were treated unequally, for example. The husband was not allowed to leave his wife for, for any reason whatsoever, while the wife was allowed to leave, even if only on the condition that she remained alone, 1 Corinthians 7, 11. Children had special protection against deceivers, Matthew 18.6, Mark 9.42, Luke 17.2. Pure and undefiled religion was defined specifically as visiting orphans and widows in their distress, James 1.27.
and of course, the ultimate list of categories of people who were to be granted special protection and care and attention, so special that the salvation of a person depends on how he treats these special categories. In Matthew 25, 31-46, quote, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Obviously, all these categories are special categories. In his court, obviously, God is not blindfolded. He watches carefully how we apply his justice. He wants to know to whom we applied and how. He has special favorites. He rewards all justice, but he especially rewards justice shown to his favorites. He hates and punishes all injustice, but he especially hates and punishes injustice shown to his favorites. So special are they to him that he has included them as special cases in his law. And even in the final judgment, his salvation is conditioned upon showing justice and mercy towards these special favorites. Now, why would God do such a thing? Why wasn't his justice even, equal to all men, like the justice of the Greeks? Is he really a respecter of persons, or categories of persons? Why isn't God saying that all justice matters, instead of indicating that some justice matters more than others? Because, in a world beset by sin, equal justice is an abstraction. In God's world, there is inequality of power. Not because inequality is a bad thing, far from it. In fact, inequality is a good thing. It follows from God's unique purpose for every individual man. But when inequality of power meets the corruption of sin, the two conspire to produce inequality of justice. In a world without sin, there is no need to restrain powerful men or to place special protection around weaker people. But when sin has affected everyone, including the powerful of the day, the temptation is too strong to use their power to deny justice to the weak and also to pretend on the surface that they are being equitable and that they are just defending law and order. Nothing else. Abstract, impersonal justice in a world of sin only becomes a facade for oppression. That was true in the old Israel, where the government under the law of God was supposed to be limited, only judiciary. How much more it is today, when the government is executive and is constantly involved in controlling resources, absorbing revenue, and distributing government contracts to private cronies. Power does not corrupt, but corrupt men abuse power when they have it and their victims are always the weaker members of the society. For this reason, God placed special boundaries of protection around the weaker members of the society, so special that even the salvation of a powerful person depends on him studiously honoring these boundaries, which means that under the law of God, those with more power and privilege are under obligation to actively identify those weaker than them and make sure they render justice to them. Not simply render equal, abstract, impersonal justice, but justice specifically concerned with those weaker than them. A judge, a field owner, a business owner, a lender of money, a strong muscular man, a soldier in an occupying army, a rich man taking a wife, were to be careful to identify the kind of person they were working with and specifically go to the law to learn the specific commands about dealing with people weaker than them, whether physically or financially or legally or relationally or in any other way. To make it simple, 
when God says widows or any other weaker person's lives, liberty, property, etc. matter, you don't dare talk back to, at him and say all lives, liberty, property, etc. matter. Because you talk back at him like that, you are in trouble. When God placed special protection for, for weaker categories of people in his law, he did it with a purpose. And we all know it very well when it is used against us. For example, if Soros or other liberal billionaires influence politics using their money, we all say, hey, wait, our votes matter. And if Soros replies, well, all votes matter, we wouldn't be very convinced, would we? Now, this is nothing more than just a repetition of the same principle that Jesus gave in Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much shall be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Power and privilege are all given. They are all entrusted capital. Therefore, all those who have power and privilege should expect to have heavier burden of justice laid on them. This is the biblical principle. Now, on a side note, it is because of the abandonment of this principle that the celebrity cult worship has emerged in the United States. And that's why the church is in a free fall. When we as a church start applying Luke 12, 48 to our pulpit celebrities, we will have some real revival. The question now is, does white privilege exist at all? Is it a reality? The answer is, yes, it certainly exists. Yes, it is a reality in America today. Before we continue, though, we need to take care of one of the numberless conservative schizophrenias in America today. When one talks about blacks, crime level in black communities, etc., conservatives have a neat source of information. Statistics shows. That is, aggregate information matters. When the talk is about white privilege, however, suddenly the statistics means nothing and we're looking only at individuals. Now, look at me, I'm white. What privileges do I have? And then, of course, the Holocaust is mentioned, or the Civil War is mentioned, or the Genghis Khan is mentioned, etc. That is, aggregate information doesn't matter. Conservatives are just as schizophrenic as liberals. Keep that in mind. Anyway, let's move to white privilege, and let's look at aggregate information. In order to understand how white privilege is real, we need to return back to our previous episode where we talked about the two different value systems that a man is always assessed by. One was judicial. It had to do with his nature of being a bearer of the, of the image of God. The other one was economic, and it had to do with his gifts and calling in the fulfillment of the dominion mandate. His judicial status denotes his rights in relation to other people and to the society's institutions. His economic status denotes his privilege respect to control and management of God's resources. The economic power of man, therefore, is his privilege. There is nothing wrong with privileges. There is no guilt associated with them. A number of faithful men in the Bible were fabulously rich and therefore powerful, and their wealth and power did not lead to their demise. Now, where there was a demise, as with Solomon, it was not related directly to wealth and power. Thus, it is a mandate under the law of God that we're all equal before the law, that is, judicially. We have the same right to justice. On the other hand, it is by God's providence that we're all unequal before God's resources, that is, economically. Statistics shows, and one doesn't really need statistics to know it, that if we really separate white community from black community, which many people in America do without even noticing it, the white community really has better control over economic resources. It has more people in it, and these people are on the average wealthier than the average black American. Now, 
That is not to say that there is anything wrong with a group of people being wealthier than another group. There is no guilt associated with it. Neither is this an assessment of the reasons why it is so. Obviously, the white community has a longer history of capital and skill accumulation over generations. It also has a higher level of work ethic. This is a good reason why there is a need for missions in the black communities, and I mean missions in the comprehensive sense, including the applications of the gospel to personal work ethic. We must also acknowledge that there is a not-so-moral reason for the difference, and that is the cultural and economic leftovers from slavery. Now, what share they have in the economic situation of the black community today is another issue. Now, this is a good reason, though, why we need to preach the applications of the gospel to justice to the white community. Our main thesis here, however, is that the economic status of the white community is certainly higher than the economic status of the black community for different mixed reasons, of course, but still higher. Some time ago, I read some memoirs by a white teacher in an all-black public school. The overall attitude was of hostility against whites, although the teacher herself was rather respected. Once she asked her students, what if all whites disappeared from America? Would y'all be better off? The student's response was sincere, would be all screwed. In the current historical situation, obviously, there is still control of resources and productive knowledge that the white community has over the other communities. Its economic status is higher, and higher economic status means higher privilege. It's just a fact. Now, not that there is anything wrong with privilege itself again, nor any guilt. If anything is wrong, it is in the very social perception of communities separated by skin color, ethnicity, or genetics. A godly society doesn't produce such separate communities. Israel left Egypt, and with Israel, a mixed multitude, and in Hebrew it is literally an Arab multitude, left Egypt too, Exodus 12:38. We do not see the people of that mixed multitude forming their own ethnic communities within Israel. To the contrary, Israel became a homogenous nation. In fact, Caleb, the leader of Judah, the largest tribe, was himself a Kenizzite, that is, from one of the tribes whose land God would later give to the descendants of Abraham, Genesis 15:19. We shouldn't be talking at all about white and black communities in the first place. But because of generational sin and the leftovers of that sin, such separation or perception of separation is still a reality. So the different economic status is still a reality, and therefore white privilege is still a reality. Again, nothing wrong with it in itself. Work ethic can be acquired. Economic status changes over time eventually, and this can be healed by a simple process of preaching and changing of practical ethics. The issue comes when we understand that privilege and power in a fallen world, in an ungodly society, can lead to abuse and denial of justice to the weaker and less privileged groups, or, in the more common case, just silence in the face of injustice. Under the law, when the only government agents were the judges, the temptation of favoring the rich and powerful and wronging the poor and weak members of the society were still very strong. Under the modern pagan executive state, the temptation is even stronger. The state can choose to favor groups that control more resources or contribute more resources in the form of taxes and oppress other groups who are less privileged. And in fact, this is exactly what is happening today in almost every single policy of the modern executive state. The most obvious, of course, is the modern policy concerning abortions. The victims, the unborn children, can contribute no votes to political parties and pay no taxes, nor do they pay lobbyist money. 
Thus, the legislative action of the executive state is in favor of the lobbyists who profit from abortions. As I have mentioned many times, we never see cops shutting down abortion mills. We always see them defending them. Modern justice is always in favor of those more powerful and privileged. This applies to many more weaker groups. In different forms and under different kinds of disguise, oppression is practiced by the government against the poor and homeless, against poor minorities, against strangers, against younger people, etc. This oppression, of course, is not done openly. No oppression is carried under the official title of quote-unquote oppression. It is always under some form of legitimately sounding government policy or regulation, like reproductive rights, monetary policies, employment regulations, immigration control, environmental safety, law and order in the inner cities, drug abuse control, etc. And in the process of oppression, the state makes sure that certain groups, those with better privilege and therefore more social power, are left relatively unmolested so that they don't use their privilege and power to stop oppression. Thus, privilege, while, while not wicked in itself, can be abused, not in direct oppression, but in complacent silence about oppression. I have talked in a previous episode uh, on institutional racism in the prison industrial complex, how that oppression is practiced by our government today, and also how we are complacently silent about it. After all, it mainly affects the blacks, not us. Biblically, however, the groups of better privilege and more power in the culture have certain obligations under the principle of Luke 12:48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom uh, they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. According to the law of God, we're not allowed to deny the fact of the privilege. It is there and it is clearly seen in the greater social and economic power of the white community. Our obligation is to acknowledge the reality of that privilege and acknowledge that under Luke 12:48, we are under a greater responsibility. Part of that responsibility is to actively identify the groups and categories of people in our society who, for one reason or another, in the inherited covenantal realities of our age are socially underprivileged and powerless, and therefore, being underprivileged and powerless, are vulnerable to injustice. Injustice not necessarily by us personally, but by the state, with our silent permission. We're not only obligated to actively identify such groups, but also to be vigilant and identify the different forms of oppression. If under the law of God, even a seemingly innocent action of entering the house of a poor debtor to take a pledge is defined as oppression, then the same ethical principle applies to many more things that to us may look innocent, but to the weaker members of the society are oppressive and humiliating. We have relative wealth and privilege entrusted to us. Our obligation is to take up our responsibility and use our privilege to guard the weaker against oppression. Not to deny our privilege, not to feel guilty about it, not to transfer wealth to make others as privileged as we are, not feel responsible to change the economic status of anyone, ours or that of others, but defend and protect the judicial status of full rights of those who can't protect it for themselves. And it is from there that our share in the work and the process of racial reconciliation must start. Not just racial reconciliation, but also justice and liberty for all. Denying the privilege is immature and also dangerous before God, or for he may decide to take it away from us if we continue denying it in ungratefulness to him. 
The black community needs to do its part, of course, no doubt about it. But then again, Luke 12:48 must be a guiding principle for justice. To whom much is given, much shall be required of them. And may God give us the grace to restore that principle among us. The book I will assign for reading this week is The Anti-Chinese Movement in California by Elmer Sandmeyer. From the perspective of time, we can see the injustice done to a weaker minority, an injustice that at the time was not obvious even to the most conscientious of Christians. We need to understand there is such injustice done today, and we need to be ahead of our time and stand against it. And remember in your prayers and in your giving, Bulgarian Reformation Ministry, a mission in Eastern Europe which has proven successful by creating a foundation for a Christian civilization by translating books and preaching a comprehensive gospel where none has been preached before. Visit BulgarianReformation.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and donate. And God bless you all. This was a Reconstructionist Radio War Room production. Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Please visit projidarmarinov.com and reconstructionistradio.com forward slash acts to the root. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.